we begin this morning a two-part civics lesson. I know that you're all excited about that, but stick with me. The first thing is the statue down by the river, on the Ohio River, of a big towering man hovering over the masses at Sawyer Point. This is a statue of Cincinnatus. And I'm not sure if you know, Cincinnatus was not a mythological man. He was an actual human being that existed. Now, some of his deeds and exploits were probably enlarged over the years to make him seem like more of a, more of a legendary figure. But just to be sure, and this is the geekiness of the day, which I bring with me continually, is that Cincinnati was not named for Cincinnatus. Rather, it was named for the Society of Cincinnati, who is named for Cincinnatus. So you're like, you're splitting hairs here, y'all, but understand that there's, you know, a connection between this useless piece of information. And that is because at uh, the end of the Revolutionary War, one of the first societies established in 1783 was the Society of Cincinnati. Again, named for Cincinnatus. And it was founded by some Revolutionary War officers, and they were trying to promote patriotism in the new country. And the very first president, by the way, of the Society of Cincinnati was George Washington himself, the president of the United States. So the Society of Cincinnati grew in popularity, and it was the general in charge of Fort Washington, where Cincinnati was uh, the fort from which Cincinnati sprang, uh, Arthur St. Clair. At that point, the city was named La Santaville. He's like, that's a stupid name. So in order to even honor George Washington, he called the city Cincinnati, and it is known as that Today, Now, I say this of interest because you look at the statue, and I'm not sure you've ever, I mean, most of us, if you've been in Cincinnati, you've seen this statue. It's, if you're on the Purple People Bridge, it just, it's below you. And it's a very tall statue, but you see Cincinnatus doing two things right here. By the way, Lucius Quintus Cincinnatus. So it's not like they just called him Cincinnatus. That's his last name, just so that we know. Two things. Number one, you can see he's leaning on this thing. This is a plow. Cincinnatus was a farmer, lived about 600 years before Jesus. And even though he was a farmer, he was a soldier. He preferred the field. But at a point of conflict, they said, Cincinnatus, you are such a great general. Will you take the power and lead the army into war? And he did that. But once the war was over, instead of declaring himself emperor and ruler, he handed back the power that was given to him. So this is represented by this thing in his hand, the fasces, which is scrolls surrounded by an axe. It's supposed to symbolize the power of authority. So Cincinnatus says, no, I've got my farming plow here. I would rather return to my fields and hand back the power. And many say it's that the story of Cincinnatus influenced George Washington when he could have ran for a third term to say, nope, I'm a simple farmer. Let me go back to Mount Vernon and somebody else can take the authority of the country. Wow, that was an enlightening story, wasn't it? Yeah, so you, you just Wikipedia this crap and it's the same thing over and over again. Now, part two of the civics lesson, since I'm talking about George Washington, needs to end into the other side of this, our, our current president, and the word impeachment. Now, I know that there's a lot going on, and I'll be honest, is that I've been busy traveling. I have not seen any impeachment, but I wanted to put the letter or the word up here in capital letters for us today just because I have a premonition of feeling is that regardless of who you are today, that even observing that word brings in you some emotion. 
Maybe it is enthusiasm or angst. Maybe there's just some sort of uh, frustration that you're feeling. And I think instead of going into the, 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 the situation itself, which really it's difficult for us to do legally because we like our 501c3 uh, non-exempt or exempt status. So we don't talk about politics here. It's not that we're afraid to do it, but really what we want to do is get to the root underlying this. Because the angst or joy or whatever you feel out of this word is really centered in something that we can see spoken of throughout the scriptures, and that is the topic of power. How does that, your feeling of impeachment, connect to power? Because it's how we view power and those who have it and how they wield it. What we want to see generally is justice concerning power. We want to see people wield it well. And when it's not, or even when we think others are not, it creates within us this anxiety, this anger, this frustration, because we think that if somebody has power, they need to, in the words of Uncle Ben, not the rice guy, but the Spider-Man uncle guy, and with power comes great you know, responsibility, and we want to see that responsibility used well. So I will say that our text today in the book of Acts speaks to this underlying issue of power. So we're in the midst of a series we started last fall in the book of Acts. We're calling it behind the scenes because this gives us a behind the scenes look of the start of the church, this institution that exists today. And we're at in Acts chapter 10, which in your blue Bible, if you have one, is page 778. In the book of Acts, chapter 10, we reach a pivotal moment. But of all these Bible stories that you may be familiar with, this one is probably not on the upper tier. It's very peculiar, but it's a very important biblical story, and it impacts the rest of the New Testament. Because what it clarifies is the tension between the Jews and the Gentiles. And again, maybe you've been in church and heard of this and haven't processed through what Jew-Gentile is. I think we understand Jews, you know, because of the religion of the people. Gentile is one of those terms that kind of, you know, plagues us. The, the Hebrew term for Gentile is goyim, which has within the truth goy, which is the world. And it's basically Gentiles are non-Jews. And at this point in the church, the vast majority, if not all the people in the church, were Christians who once were Jews. So as the disciples went and talked about the story of Jesus, he was the Jewish Messiah. They went to synagogues, they went to the temple, they went to places where Jews would hear the message. But underlying, not just the book of Acts, but even throughout the scriptures, is this idea that God is not just the God of the Jews, he's the God of everybody. And here in Acts chapter 10, we see how this plays out and we understand the story. So we're going to go through this text this morning as we're prone to do here at Echo going to start in Acts chapter 10. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5. Read along with me, if you will, in your pew Bible or your digital Bible, however you see fit. Acts 10, 1 through 5. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day, in about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctively saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius! And Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? And the angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. 
So our story starts in a port town called Caesarea, um, middle area of Israel, a little bit more toward the, no, the, the north. Uh, Caesarea, sometimes called Caesarea Maritima, was a seaport that the Romans built so that they could gain access across the Mediterranean Sea. It makes sense then that we see this man Cornelius there because as soldiers were being sent from Italy, where it seems that Cornelius is from, they would have arrived via boat to the city of Caesarea to be deployed all over the kingdom. So we need to understand what it means that this man, Cornelius, was a centurion. So a centurion was a, a Roman officer. I think, I, I don't know if this is even a, a like a, some, what it would, what's that one game? It's like ancient civilizations, that thing. I am not a gamer. I don't know. I should have Wikipedia'd that stuff. This is not like period-centric, but that ju- it just looked like this, this guy was ready to go. Be a soldier. Cornelius was a centurion. And if you can think about that, you know, etymology right there, you, you see century maybe in that. Centurion, century means a hundred. He was over a hundred different soldiers. So as this position, as a Roman officer, he wielded power, the power of the Roman Empire. I want to talk about this because this is something that underplays all of the New Testament, especially that we need to understand today because we view Christianity as this powerful, obsessive uh, structure understand is that the the Christianity of the New Testament came in when there was a bigger power at work, and that was the power of the Roman Empire. And as much as you might remember grade school, maybe high school history, talking about the Pax Romana, it sounds all peaceful, right? But how did Rome get their power? They got it through military conquest, might, and violence, Okay, so the power of the empire was not this power. It's like, hey, let's all just be, you know, let's live for the republic. This is not Anakin and Star Wars. This is, well, it is Anakin and Star Wars when he kills the younglings, right? Like, this is violence. This is death. This is how they did it. And as a centurion, Cornelius would have been one of the leaders. So let's not sugarcoat this story. At some point, Cornelius, was to get to this level, was responsible for killing people who would not yield to Rome. However... What we read here is Cornelius, somewhere he gets to Caesarea, and he comes into contact with this idea of Yahweh, God of the Jews. And we see that it's impacting him. It's impacting him to the point that he is connotated here as a God-fearing person. So when when the New Testament authors talk about this, being a God-fearer means he isn't a a proselyte. He, He hasn't become a Jew, but he appreciates it. Let's be honest. The reason why he probably didn't become a Jew, because it included the right of circumcision. And he's like, I'm good. I'll just worship from afar, right? This is a good idea. But he respects God and gives to the poor, apparently, to the point that God wants to speak to him. Can I give you one little asterisk here that maybe relates to the story? I'll try to bring it back into, doesn't it? Luke notes his name Cornelius. And to you and I, this just sounds like another one of these old Bible names. But what's very interesting is that there was a historical figure that lived 80 years before Jesus was born named Cornelius Sula. And Cornelius Sula had enough power in Rome that he was able to negotiate the release of 10,000 slaves. And what's very interesting is that almost all of those 10,000 slaves decided then to join the Roman army out of appreciation and made army careers. So the adapting the name of Cornelius was significant is that they were once slaves and now 
they were serving Rome in the army. It's kind of, really, if you think about, uh, and I hate to cite history through the, because, you know, you guys just, Hamilton the musical now tells us everything about Ham- Alexander Hamilton, that you're like, okay, I remember that verse that Lin-Manuel wrote. But there is the idea that if you read through Hamilton's journals and his writings, he really did want America to go to war against Britain because he knew that even though he had no status, through war he could gain status because a soldier could gain prominence. And this is actually what Cornelius who was once a former slave, the descendants of slaves, had an opportunity to do by serving in the army. So he has become, essentially in himself, the power of the empire, but he has figured out that there's something bigger in this universe than even the empire, and that's God. He's pursuing God. And what's very interesting here in the text is God pursues Cornelius. Isn't that great? Like, you're longing for something of God to just show you something. And God appears before Cornelius through angel and says, hey, Cornelius, you're doing good work. And he's like, sweet, I'm on the right path. This is what I love too. You're like, I'm waiting for God to tell me I'm doing good work. And then you're like, God, what is your word for me? And he goes, go send for somebody else. <laughs> Isn't that great? Number one, God's like, Here, I, you're, you're, a, you're a commander, you're a centurion. I'm giving you orders now. Go, go get Peter. You need Peter in your life. I just love this idea is that sometimes God is working and moving and you're like, God, just show me what I need to do. And the thing that God has on your list is go do something else. Just do more stuff. And you're like, wait, wait, no, no, God, I want the epiphany. And sometimes God is just telling you, just keep your plowed to the ground and keep planting some seeds and you're going to see what happens. And this is what happens to Cornelius. God finally speaks to him and he says, go get Peter, he'll explain things. So let's go to the second scene here, verses 9 through 16, as we introduce Peter to the conversation about noon the following day as they were out on their journey and approaching the city Peter went up to the roof to pray he became hungry and wanted something to eat and while the meal was being prepared he fell into a trance he saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners it contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles of the earth and birds of the air. And then a voice told Peter, get up, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. And then the voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. And this happened three times. And immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. Just show a, a map, just to give you perspective. So remember, Cornelius is in Caesarea, which is up, you know, northern on the Mediterranean Sea. Joppa is just to the south. You can see Jerusalem is more inland. It's about 40 miles south. They're just roughly the distance from Cincinnati to suburban Dayton, right? Not a far way. Peter comes to Joppa, and we just are assuming is that he's within the home of some Jewish Christians, and he's like, you know, look, I'm an apostle. It's my gig. I need to go up and pray. He's a better Christian than you are, but maybe he's not, right? Because he gets to the roof, and he's doing some, I, I don't know how you exert calories through prayer, but apparently Apparently it gets there, or maybe it's just the wafting of the food being prepared below, where Peter's like, yeah, and Lord, I thank you for this, and I'm really, really hungry right now. Like, hunger comes over the apostle, and then, oh, heaven's open, and the sheet starts coming down to the ground. Now, quite honestly, I've got a picture here that you can't see. Like, the pixels are bad. I had no idea it was this pixel when it's on my little computer screen, by the way. 
But I, and by the way, I'm pretty sure this is like Jehovah's Witness artistry because they're the ones who make these things. So, you know, but there is some ac- accuracy within this is that this sheet is being loaned out and Peter's like, oh no, lunch. It's coming his way. But it's funny is that as we hear in this or read in the scriptures, this sheet, it must be a really solid sheet, y'all, because it's holding a bunch of animals. Like this has got to be like, what, like 2,000 thread count or something? It's just, it's massive. It's soft to the touch, as are the, the, the contents of said sheep, which is animal kings. We see the four-footed. I love that the artist is like, here's a giraffe, because... I mean, essentially a draft could be on that sheet, but can you imagine like, you know, people are in the fire, it's like, what's happening at that house over there? It's just a floating giraffe, all right? And by the way, I love that there's a snake. There's even a hippo. Fiona made the scene, okay? So these things are coming down. The, the importance then is understanding what the significance of this is, and it wraps up within Jewish tradition of the laws of kashrut. And kashrut, again, maybe you, you're familiar, you can see in there, the, the Jewish word kosher comes from this. And basically, it was God's provision to his people to allow them to be separate from the rest of the world. God did many things to show they were separate. Circumcision, indeed, was one of them. But the most common was what they were permitted to eat and what they could not eat. And there was a whole list in the Torah, in the, the books of Leviticus and, and Deuteronomy, of what they can and cannot eat. And I will say that giraffes and hippos and elephants were on that list, right? So these were non-edible things, as were snakes and birds, okay? So this sheet comes down with animals, and God basically tells Peter, he was like, hey, you're hungry? Here's dinner. Kill it yourself. This is why I'm not sure there was a giraffe there, because I've never killed a giraffe, and I'm not trying to be morbid right here. I'll tell you is that I'm not getting near Fiona because as much as you think those hippos are cute, they are really, they, you're like, no, 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 they're herbivores. I don't care. They will eat human beings. I don't think those animals were there. There might have been a snake. And Peter's just like, nobody wants to eat iguana for, for lunch. However, I guarantee, I guarantee, and I was not there. It's not in the Bible, but I guarantee there was some pig on that sheet. And Peter's staring at the pig. And he's like, I've heard tales of the Gentiles about the goodness of this animal. And he grabs the knife and he walks toward the pig and he says, no, no, no. Lord, I cannot do this because these animals are unclean. It would violate the laws of kashrut. I will not eat these animals no matter how tasty they might be because I've never done that in my life. And the Lord says to Peter, he's like, look, I've changed the rules You might not understand it, but you will. Don't call anything impure that I have made clean. Now, Peter's hungry, and you're like, this is a peculiar story. But do you see how this resonates further? They were separated because of what they they ate, but they were also separated because of who they were as Jews. They were God's holy people. Everybody else were goyim. They were the Gentiles. They were not holy because they did not have a relationship with God. Jews saw themselves as holier than the rest of humanity. And what God is saying is that don't call impure that which I've made pure. In the food lesson, God is saying, look, there's a new way of viewing the kingdom. And that is, I am the God of all people. So Peter, 
takes his moral obligation, and I will tell you, is that this is one of my favorite texts in all the Bible. Because we get to witness here in Acts chapter 10 a man taking his first bite of bacon. Can you imagine the euphoric experience that he said? He was just like, I get it now, God. I get it. I've had bacon. It makes sense. The Gentiles are good. And this is the thing I love about this too. This doesn't just happen once. It happens three times. It's like it happens again. And Peter's just like, wait, 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 wait. More bacon? All right. I understand the lesson. Like this guy is going, have you ever gone to the breakfast buffet? Not, you know what? Let me just be honest. Just go to, don't go to the Frisch's breakfast buffet. I know some of you do it. But it's a violation of just what's good about life. Like, they have really lowered their standards. If you like that, if that's your thing, fine. But just go to a buffet. And look, if there's a pile of bacon, y'all, you just say, look, I might not eat all this, but I know there's effort to be made and I will die trying. And Peter had that experience. I love this, I love this vision because it happens over and over again. And as Peter is gorging himself on bacon, why three times? I just think God wants to make sure. Peter, there's no doubt this is my message. Peter's got bacon and sausage in his mouth. And he's like, hey guys, what's up? And they're like, we're from Cornelius. Can you, can you come to Caesarea? He's like, okay, hold on, more bacon. And then goes on his way. Verses uh, 24 to 26 of chapter 10. Um, The next day, Peter started out. He he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them, and it called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I am only a man myself. Now, I think this is a valuable lesson, not just for Cornelius, but for us as well. Because what we see in the kingdom of God And in the way of Jesus, there is no advanced standing for people regardless of where they're from. Peter was an apostle. I mean, he made the Gospels, right? Like, Peter was Jesus' guy. You know, he was the edgy one. He was the one that every every apostle wanted to be. And even though Peter then, today, is one of the most famous human beings who ever lived, he walked into the house, and Cornelius, let's not miss this aspect of it, Cornelius was an officer in the Roman army who came to rule over the Jewish people as Rome saw fit, and when this man walks through the door, Cornelius' intention is to bow down as if he is something there, and Peter's like, you, you know, get up. This is not how things work. I'm a man, you're a man. This is not how it works in the kingdom of God. And it's one of the things that I love. We see this in the book of Hebrews. Uh, Whoever wrote that, whether it be Paul or somebody else, it's called the priesthood of all believers. And it's this idea is that as much as you might lift up clergy people for their roles, they are no better than any other believer. They have a role to play in the kingdom, but it is not more significant that they deserve to be held up. Friends, sometimes we are held sway to the power of status. I like to relate this into an event that happened to me a few years ago. I I worked at Cincinnati Christian University, which was a school. I could go into that later. But we did this fundraiser. Obviously, it didn't work. And this fundraiser, which I worked my butt off for, by the way, I worked overtime. Andrew, were you working with me at that time? Was that before? Did you, were you here for this? Andrew worked with me at CCU for a while. I don't know if this happened before you, but Tim Tebow came. You guys, you know the Tim Tebows, right? The Jesus quarterback. Like he was, he, he was really good in college, but then he got to the NFL and he was fairly good at a time, 
But man, people loves the Tim Tebow, right? Christian people love it because it's just like, I don't know why when an athlete becomes Christian, it's like they're better. And then I'm reading online. It's like, you have to watch this team because their person's Christian and they pray. And, and stuff. I'm like, okay, there's a lot of Christian people out there, but sometimes they're not best on the gridiron. That was fine. But Tim was in the midst of the height of his popularity so that we were able to, uh, you know, you pay a speaker's fee. And he flew in to talk to this. And actually, there's a whole story to where his flight was late because he was at Jet's training camp. So I had to fill in for Tim Tebow. So yes, I tell people, is that, oh yeah, you like Tim Tebow? I was his backup. Two truths and a lie, that's my go-to. So delete that from the podcast because I don't want people to know that, right? So anyways, so Tim Tebow's there. I get a chance to be around the Tim Tebow's. It's very interesting because I'm noticing the dynamic that surrounds him. At this time, the, you know, and I say the kid because I'm, in, I'm 20 years older than Tim Tebow almost, eh, maybe a little less. But at this point, he's 24 and he's walking around. I'm seeing adults fawn over him. There was a, a, a sibling of a, a famous person that was in town who we were able to get tickets for, and she met him. And she's just, you know, she's this 50-year-old lady, and she's just like, Tim. And, and she actually knows famous athletes. And she's just like, can I hug you? And I was like, who asks a grown-ass man if they can hug them in public? And he's like, you know, and I'm just like, I'm just like, are you kidding me? He's like, sure. And I'm like, this is why Tim Tebow's better than all of us. Because he lets randos hug him. But here's the deal, is that he walked around and people were just like, it's Tim Tebow. And, and seriously, at one point, somebody's like, hey, you want to get a picture with Tim? I'm like, I'm good. You know, not just because I was his backup, but because as much as he's a good dude, he's a human being. And too many times we assign, assign layers of status and importance to people that raise this. I just say this for a lesson. I'm going to return to this in a little bit. But this happens to us in life. Is so many times we see people as being something more significant. And at the end of the day, y'all, we're all on the path to becoming worm food. We will all be dead. Right? It's not going to matter. People are people. We have significance because God sees significance in us because of what Jesus has done. And that's how the conversation goes. There's so much of this. If I impact all of Acts 10, we'd be here for a few hours because it is really good. But I want to skip down to verses 34 and 35 because this gets us more to the point. 34 and 35 of Acts chapter 10. Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts people from every nation who fear him and do, is, and do what is right. So the message that Peter realizes is the message, the power of the gospel, the good news of Jesus. This is the point, not just of Acts and the turning of the church, but to where you and I sit today. Perhaps you turn on the TV and you hear about evangelical Christianity, about what certain people think, who's supposed to be Christian and not, and you're trying to decide how that intermixes with your life because you're like, wait, why are these people standing up for, for God, but then they're doing ungodly things that drives you crazy? You need to stop and nestle in the idea is that true biblical Christianity 